I'm Lauren Vogel, a reporter for CMAJ News. I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Weinberg, director of the McGill University AIDS Centre and head of AIDS research at the Lady Davis Institute in Montreal. Dr. Weinberg will soon be inducted into the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame for his involvement in the identification of lamivudine, also known as 3TC, one of the most widely used treatments for HIV. As president of the International AIDS Society from 1998 to 2000, Dr. Weinberg also brought unprecedented attention to global disparities in access to HIV treatment. Now he's working towards a cure. Dr. Weinberg, how did you first become involved in AIDS research? I had done a sabbatical in the early 80s at the National Institutes of Health in the laboratory of Dr. Robert Gallo, who is widely credited with being one of the co-discoverers of HIV. Being in that lab put me in a very wonderful position to later collaborate and benefit from the fact that I, you know, had established really good friendships. And Dr. Gallo sent me all of the reagents that I needed to work with HIV, and he literally allowed me to become the first scientist in Canada who was equipped to uh, do lab work on HIV. And that obviously put me in good stead to work together with industry. One of the companies in question was a company called Biochem Pharma, and they asked me to test their drugs under contract so that, you know, the drugs belong to them, not to me, unfortunately. And one of them turned out to be the drug that became known as 3TC, and we were the first to demonstrate its antiviral activity. You've described your time as president of the International AIDS Society as the highlight of your career. What were the biggest challenges you faced upon taking that role in 1998? By 1998, it was obvious that we had turned a corner of sorts. We now had many more drugs that were working better. What was also obvious is that these drugs were available primarily to people in rich, developed countries, and that most people in developing countries were not able to have any kind of HIV drug access. It was also crystal clear that the great burden of HIV infection in the world was already in sub-Saharan Africa. So we made a decision as an international aid society that one way of highlighting these disparities was, in fact, to bring the International AIDS Conference to South Africa, which is the country that then and now had the highest number of HIV infections in the world. But there was pushback from the government. When we decided to hold our conference in South Africa, we knew we had made a political decision. But what we didn't understand is that we would find ourselves in a confrontational situation with the president of the host country, Thabo Mbeki. And Mbeki starts making all these speeches about how he is convinced that HIV is just a harmless virus. And as long as he was president, South Africans would not be able to have access to antiretroviral drugs. So we're scientists, right? We're not politicians. How do you fight this? Because a lot of our colleagues started jumping up and down and saying, Mark, you can't hold a conference in South Africa. The president is an idiot, and it will be completely hypocritical. And then I told these colleagues, on the contrary, we must hold the conference in South Africa. Our South African colleagues are counting on us. And the result was that our conference in Durban in 2000 was attended by not just, you know, many thousands of scientists. I think there were about 20,000 people at that meeting altogether. But in the mix were about 2,000 journalists from everywhere in the world. And those journalists all wrote stories about 
How is it possible for no one or hardly anyone in South Africa to have access to these life-saving medications? What was the impact of those stories? Politicians everywhere started to take note of this disparity in terms of making drug access for everybody in the world with HIV um, at least closer to being reality than we dreamed of. Do you know how many people on the African continent had access to antiretroviral therapy in, in 2000? The figure was 7,000 people out of at least 10 or 11 million HIV-infected individuals. Today, the numbers of people who have drug access throughout Africa is at least 8 to 10 million. So that conference had real impact, and uh, it's hard for me to compare anything I've done in my life with, with that. How is public perception of HIV changing, or is it changing, given the recent reaction to Charlie Sheen's admission that he's HIV positive? Oh, yes, there's no question. Talking about, talking about Charlie Sheen, he is not going to ever be one of our poster children in the HIV space because, you know, he claims that one of his motivations uh, was to destigmatize HIV infection. In, in fact, though, if that really was his motivation, he would have self-declared four years ago or whenever it was that he became infected. And it seems apparent that the only reason he um, came out of the closet on this one was because he uh, didn't want to keep paying out millions and millions of dollars in hush money. So destigmatizing HIV was not exactly very high up on his agenda as far as I'm concerned. Magic Johnson, for us, I think, was a much better role model. But, but having said that, look, the drugs that we have available today are way, way better than the drugs that we had available going back 10 or 15 years. You know, let's talk just Canada now, okay? Our greatest high-risk group is still gay men after all these years. So the average gay man, 20 years old, gets infected today with HIV. He will probably have a life expectancy with the drugs that we have now of 78. Not bad, right? A 20-year-old who's not infected by HIV may have a life expectancy of 75 because the expectation is that the HIV-infected guy who's taking all these great drugs is going to be followed by his doctor on a regular basis. And the 20-year-old who's healthy and not infected, well, a lot of those guys are going to wind up eating half their meals at McDonald's and so on and wind up going down the slippery slope of uh, cardiac risk and so forth. So we have, as a generation of scientists and clinicians, collectively transformed HIV into a chronic manageable condition from what used to be a death sentence. So is there a risk of complacency then? You know, the, the big problem is still you have somebody who's newly infected. What we know is that it's in those first months after infection that your viral load is the highest. And that, in fact, is when you are most infectious for other people. So what we don't want is for someone in that situation to not know he's infected or she's infected and, you know, have sexual relations with lots of partners and for the virus, therefore, to be spread to these unsuspecting people who, who might have become complacent because of all the stuff out there in the news about how the drugs work so well and all of that stuff. So absolutely, complacency is something that we need to guard against. Are there the same challenges with complacency in developing countries? In Canada today, we have the very best drugs in the world. You should not assume that even though we now have drugs that treat HIV in developing countries throughout the world, 
that they necessarily have the same best high-quality drugs that we now take for granted in Canada. So they still have crappier drugs for the most part than we do. And the treatment regimens here in Canada or in the U.S. or in Britain or in France are way, way better for the most part than the treatment regimens that are now used in a standard way to treat patients in India, South Africa, and elsewhere. Looking forward, what do you see as some promising avenues for HIV prevention? There's a concept now that is called pre-exposure prophylaxis, and you take someone who's at high risk, for example, a gay man, and he knows through work that's already been published in the literature that if he takes one pill once a day, a pill called Truvada, he's going to be protected against HIV. And there's a new paper coming out. It's going to be in the New England Journal of Medicine that is going to show that, let's say I'm a gay man, I'm a lawyer, I work hard. I know that Friday night is my big night. If I just take my drug on Friday morning and Saturday morning, I'm also going to be protected. And that's pretty good because it means, you know, some of these drugs still have some side effects. So if you only take your drug twice a week instead of seven days a week or maybe, you know, four days a week instead of seven, we will save costs and we will cut down on side effects. You're also working towards a cure for HIV. Can you tell me about that? Our own uh, work now is focused on one of the newer drugs called Dolutegravir. It's an integrase inhibitor, and uh, remarkably, no one has ever developed resistance against this compound. So we've developed the notion that you cannot get resistance against this drug because the uh, mutations that would confer resistance against it and that are selected by the drug simultaneously completely compromise the ability of the virus to grow. At least that's our hypothesis, supported by laboratory data. And, you know, then we're basically saying, hey, if we can have a drug that you can't get resistance against, we can stop treatment, and then we can put somebody back on treatment later on, and maybe this will give us a way to flush out the cells that are latently infected and then retreat them with this drug and, and get all the viruses in the body to convert over to being these wimpy forms that are unable to um, replicate or cause disease. So, you know, that in a nutshell, that's my dream, and uh, time will tell if we're right or wrong. What advice would you give to young researchers entering your field today? Young students and young people need to know HMB is still, you know, a very vital and important problem, but it's not the only one. And scientists have to be able to switch gears pretty fast if they want to remain competitive. I'll give you an example, um, hepatitis C virus. It was and still is a compelling problem, but we now have drugs that are able to cure hepatitis C virus infection. I can tell you it's pretty hard to get a grant to work on hepatitis C virus in relative terms since these curative strategies were developed because the granting agencies will have the attitude, well, is this really that compelling a problem in the way that it used to be? And, and to some extent, the answer is no. It's less compelling now because the drugs do work so well. So we haven't figured out yet how to cure HIV, but hopefully that is going to happen. And if and when it does, then HIV scientists have to be nimble enough to switch fields and, and work on something else that will be considered compelling. It wasn't so long ago that a cure for HIV was thought to be impossible, at least for the foreseeable future. But you sound more optimistic. Do you expect to see a cure in your lifetime? I would certainly like it to be the case. 
you know, if I have a decade to go on this planet, let's say, um, I would love to be part, you know, in, in my old age as a scientist of, of being part of the cure for HIV. I would really love that. That would be a great way to, to end life on this, on this earth. 